Today we're going to continue on with the series of messages that we're doing through Galatians. Finishing up in chapter 5 today, uh, the passage is printed in your bulletin if you have one of your bulletins with you there. And I'll also be going through it on the screen. You'll see it there as we go through it as well. In the Ron Howard film, Far and Away, uh, Ron Howard writes and directs this film, and it tells the story of an Irish farmer, Joseph Donnelly. Joseph Donnelly lived in Ireland in the mid to late 1800s, and he was a sharecrop tenant farmer there. So he farmed land that he did not own. A landowner owned it, and a landlord took care of it. And, and Joseph Donnelly eventually finds his way through this film, follows the adventure of him leaving Ireland and coming to America, and then finding a place where he can have a farm of his own in America, that he owns the land. And, and he gets that through the Homestead Act in Oklahoma, where, where the government gave away chunks of land for people to come in and homestead and be able to farm and, and raise their own crops there that way or use that as a ranch. Even though the movie Far and Away is a fictional story that follows that, the Homestead Act is real. It's history. Passed by President Abraham Lincoln in 1862, the Homestead Act declared that federal land is, is, is the... Um, as America moved its territory westward, that federal land then would be given to people to then develop and homestead, to farm, as they get that. So the land then that was between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains in the mid to late 1800s, the government would give away parcels of that that people could then develop as farmland through the Homestead Act. You could get up to 160 acres just by going there and making a farm out of it when they gave that, when they... Uh, declared those territories to be open for that, for homesteading. And they did that in chunks, not all at once, but different territories at different times. And, and some of them became rather famous, rather famous for the way that uh, people would rush in to do that. So in the spring of 1889, about 2 million acres of what is now Oklahoma was declared open for homesteading. Picture of what that looks like. Because what they did was, on a certain day at a certain time, it was April 2, April 2, 1889, at noon, they opened up Oklahoma. And nearly 50,000 people came and gathered to all rush in at once to claim their 160 acres to be able to set up or make a farm or a ranch there. Some people, and, and it was open for anyone, not just United States citizens, right? Immigrants who just arrived could do this. Former slaves who were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation could do this. Anyone could show up and do this. In fact, the only two things that were required was this. You had to be at least 21 years old, and you paid an $18 registration fee with the government. So if you were 21 and had 18 bucks on you, you could get 160 acres of land to do that. So on this particular day, April 2, 1889, 50,000 people rushed into Oklahoma to all claim their little piece of land that they had there. Some people cheated. They paid their registration fee and they got what they needed to do that, but they snuck in early. They didn't wait till that day at that time. So that there were some people who, when the people came in to find the lots, they, they found that some people were already in there claiming their spaces and fencing it off and making their own 160-acre spots there. They gave those people a nickname. Do you know what they're called? 
Yeah. Hint, uh, it, is the, it lives on to this day as a nickname as the mascot of Oklahoma University. Sooners. Yep. So for the people who cheated on April 2, 1889 and went in early to get their spot, they called those people Sooners because they went in too soon, too early to get their spot. So, in a movie like Far and Away, where you see someone like Joseph Donnelly, who, who had no freedom of his own in Ireland, but it was an arrogant landlord who told him what to raise and how to do it and what to do with the land, then moving to a place where all of a sudden he could get his own land, his own farm, to develop however he chose to do that. You find in that, though, even in true history, in true life, that there is a confrontation of choices that go with that. That the freedom that we have, the freedom that we've been given, the freedom that we see expressed in so many ways here in this country is a freedom that comes with choices. And some of those choices then are choices that confront us. Confront us with maybe moral choices of doing what's right, doing what's best. Or sometimes that freedom allows us choices to Maybe choose the wrong thing, to cheat, to do something that's maybe out of our own selfish ambition for us. We think of freedom in different ways like that. Today, then, as we continue through Galatians and we close out chapter 5, we're going to see the Apostle Paul talk about something like that, about the confrontation that comes before us with the choices we have with what we do with our freedom and how that works out for us. So today as we go through that, I'm going to take it just a chunk at a time. We're not going to read it all at once, but we'll take it a section at a time, and then I'll talk about those sections as we move forward. This last section of Galatians 5 is probably the best-known section of the entire book of Galatians because this includes the passage that we know or have come to know as the fruit of the Spirit which is one of Paul's more famous and more memorable writings. So we're going to work through the sections of this passage that lead up to that so that we can see how all of that, this thing that we know is the fruit of the Spirit, fits into what Paul is telling us and teaching us through Galatians 5, okay? So I'm going to start with a few verses then, and I'm just going to start then today starting at verse 13, and I'm just going to go from verse 13 through verse 15 where the Apostle Paul writes this then, beginning with these verses. But you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I'll take it that far first, and let's, let's talk about just those verses before we move on. So what is the Apostle Paul telling us in just these verses as we introduce this idea of, then, what this freedom means and how this works? Well, what Paul is doing here just in these verses, and, and this is typical of so many pieces of Scripture, of biblical writing, that there is a mirror outline that Paul states something and makes an argument, and then he works his way and he backtracks to where he began. And we see that in this passage as well. So if you look at 
13, just verse 13, 13a and 13b, you find something of this argument that he's introducing for us about how we use our freedom. He says in the first part of verse 13, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. But then at the last part of verse 13, he says, rather serve one another humbly in love. Then in verses 14 and 15, he turns around and he backtracks and he says the exact same thing in reverse order, right? In verse 14, he says, the entire law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor. And then he restates exactly where he began in verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, you will destroy each other. So what's he bringing to us? How is he introducing this to us? Well, there is in this a series of if-then clauses, conditional statements. If you do this, then this will be the result. So as we see Paul talking about freedom, he brings it to us that way, talking about these conditional statements. If you do this, then that will happen. And he shows us two different directions for that, right? If you use your freedom to indulge the flesh, it will bring destruction. But if you use your freedom to humbly serve one another, you fulfill the law that was given to love one another. You see that. A couple things about the terms that are used in this. First of all, he talks about flesh. This is the Greek word sarx, and, and it, it's translated as flesh because that's what it literally means, but it's also Paul's way of talking about the sinful nature. In fact, if you have an older translation of the NIV, it uses the word, the term sinful nature instead of flesh in this passage because that's what Paul is talking about here. It's not meant to be a reference to the physical world, the material world, but it looks beyond that. Not just the things of this world, but the way of sin that has infected this world. Talked about in a way that Paul uses the term flesh to mean all of that. The sin that has infected and corrupted the world in which we live, the world in which we were born. But then he also talks about the other side of that being the spirit, right? And this is the Greek word pneuma. And Paul uses this then as a reference to the life of the faith that we've been given by God. So more than just being heavenly spiritual, it talks about even life now because he tells us to walk in the Spirit even now, that it is a life that we've been given through God, a life of faith, a gift for us that way. So that's where Paul begins. You see something of the contrast that's developing here. The flesh and the Spirit, two choices that are before us in freedom. Let me move on. The next section of verses. So taking verse 16 and moving forward from there. Paul says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here again in this section of verses, you see the same pattern that's existing? The same way that Paul is putting this out before us? Verses 16 and the first part of verse 17, he begins by saying, walk in the Spirit, not by the flesh. And then in verse 17, he moves on because he says, the flesh and the Spirit desire what's contrary to each other. They're opposites. They're on polar ends. 
Then he turns around in the next couple of verses and he says the exact same thing in reverse order. Conflict of the flesh and spirit means that your freedom cannot follow both desires. You're free, but you can't do it all. You can't do both. And so he concludes in verse 18. So, follow the leading of the spirit, not the leading of the law. Here again, Paul is developing that same thought that comes before us, but telling us here that, you know what, you've got a choice. There's a freedom here. You are free to choose. I'm free to choose between following the Spirit and following the flesh. We need to to be clear about how Paul has turned the conversation here because we've been looking at Galatians all the way through from chapter 1, and remember, in the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul is addressing Two different sides. The side of grace given by God. And then the side that the legalists who were coming in and saying, no, follow the law, follow the law, do the law. We're past that now. We're past that. So all of those discussions that Paul has had about circumcision and the rules of the law, he's past that now. Now we're in the zone of freedom. We're past the law. Let's talk about freedom. And the question now is, the question is, how are you going to use that freedom? What will you do with the freedom that has been given to you through Christ? How does that work itself out in your lives? Because you can hear the arguments coming back. You can imagine what it would be. Right? Paul has his opponents, the opponents at the churches in Galatia who are saying, no, rules, 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 you have to follow the rules. And you can hear what they're saying, you can almost read it between the lines, that they would say, Paul, if you get rid of the rules, people are just going to do anything they want, it will be complete chaos, and this is where Paul is turning the corner now. This is what he's talking about now. He's saying, no, 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 we do have freedom, but... How will we use that freedom so that there's not complete chaos, right? The freedom that we've been given by grace from God is still a freedom which leads us in a direction where we don't just do anything we want. There is a way that we use that freedom. So that's where he's after in this passage in these words, talking about how it is that we use our freedom because we have a choice with that freedom. Which way will we follow? And he's telling us in these section, in this verse, is that, you know what? You've got this choice between the spirit and the flesh, but you can't choose both because they're opposed to each other. They are opposites from one another. You can't have that all. So if you say, yes, I accept the spirit of God and I live by the spirit and I walk by the spirit, You cannot then also say, and also I choose the flesh and the ways of this world and what that looks like. So that needs a little more explanation. All this talk about the acts of the flesh and walking by the Spirit, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to explain that. So picking it up again. First, the acts of the flesh. And he begins with that in verses 16 and following. I'm sorry, in verses 19 and following. He says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, 
discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, this list then that he begins with of acts of the flesh, these vices that come before us. We understand this to be a representative list, not a comprehensive list. What I mean by that is this, that that it's not that it's these things and only these things, but rather the things that Paul lists here represents a larger category. These are just examples that make us think further about all right, there may be other things included on that list, but this is what that list is like. If, if a lawyer were to write this, you'd probably find legal language like, including but not limited to. And then he goes on to say that. So, I don't think it would help us to go one by one through this list of all of these vices and analyze each one in detail as though that was the comprehensive list. You stay in that box, you're okay. Rather, we should say, let's look at this list as a whole. What's the idea? What is Paul really telling us by this grouping of characteristics, of traits that he all puts in this label, this list of acts of the flesh? A couple things that we could say about that, a few things that we notice. First of all, some of those things we would notice as being what I would call moral evils. Or it's it's a use of personal freedom, that results in harming or ignoring others. In particular, these are the bookends of that list, where he begins it and where he ends it. He talks about some of these moral evils. So, for example, in the verses that he lists, things like sexual immorality, impurity, botry, idolatry, witchcraft, and at the very end of the list, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. All examples of, you know what? It's a use of personal freedom that you've been given, but it's a use of personal freedom that results in harming or ignoring other people, if that is how you choose to use your freedom. Or maybe to think of it another way, it's inward actions or actions that are focused inwardly on myself that lead to outward attitudes that harm others. So when I choose to use my freedom in ways that have acts of the flesh, then that are ways of using my freedom that are just about me, just about what I want, just about gratifying my desires, that develops within me then an attitude that eventually harms others, ignores others. And if you see the things on that list that Paul gives us, you know that to be true. That people who use the freedom that they have to indulge in those things often end up harming people around them by doing that. So it begins with that, but there's more to it. Because besides just being these moral evils, the middle of that list is something that I will label as social evils. Now, this is a use of personal freedom that is directly pointed at harming others. Right? It, it doesn't result in the harm of others, but it is intended to harm others. So that's why he can say in the middle of that list examples that fit this. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. 
all examples then of social evils that are intended to bring harm to others when we live like that. These then, maybe thinking of it differently than the moral evils, these then are inward attitudes that lead to outward actions or outward expressions of harm for others. So that's where he goes with this list of vices that he characterizes as the acts of the flesh. That we see that there is an inward focus on using my freedom for me and only me that ends up harming and hurting other people when we use our freedom that way. Now then, let's remember the context of Galatians as a whole. Because I think it would be a mistake for us to walk away from this and say, yep, now Paul's giving us a list of rules. Don't live like that. Don't do that. But that's not what Paul's after. Remember that. He's talking about freedom. That the whole point that he had in the first four chapters of Galatians was, but you're free from the rules. We don't live under the rules anymore. So why is he bringing this up to us in this way? I think what he's after here in this discussion of freedom is that he's bringing us in this direction to bring us to this point to say, but you know what? There's a better way. You don't have to live like that because there is a better way to live than that. And we are free to live in a better way than just focusing on ourselves and what we want in a way that harms and destroys other people. That's where he's after with this. Using your freedom in a better way. So, the last verses of this section, picking it up at verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. So this list then of these fruits of the Spirit, again, a representative list, not a comprehensive list. Right? It's meant to be something that gives us the idea of what this fruit of the Spirit looks like. But it's not meant to be one for one of, all right, if you do everything on this list, then you've nailed it all 100% complete. Or it's not meant to be a list where you say, hmm, well, if, if I can at least master half of the list, then I'm doing good enough. No, that's not what this is after. It's not a comprehensive list like that. It's representative. It's giving us the idea of something larger. The larger thing then being what it means to walk by the Spirit and to live in that way. And remember, Paul's putting this in the frame of this is the best way to use the freedom that you've been given in Christ. The better way to do that. So what that looks like then. I think we could take that entire list then as an, as an expansion of what we saw last week. 
when we saw the first half of chapter 5 where, where Paul summarizes the argument in verse 6 of this chapter by saying the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This list then of the fruit of the Spirit are an expansion of what that looks like. How does faith express itself through love? Well, let's go here. Because if you walk in the Spirit, then you bear the fruit of the Spirit. The passage I read earlier in the service about God's will for our lives from John 15, right? The, the, the passage where Jesus tells the story about the vine and the branches. Because only when you are grafted into the vine can you bear fruit. The point being this, that we don't make the fruit, we bear the fruit. That God, through his Holy Spirit, produces this in us. So it's not so much that I have to say, all right, now I've got a job to do. How do I become a more loving person? How do I become a more patient person? How do I become a more self-controlled person? No, these are things produced in us by the Spirit. So the question is, how do I become someone who walks in the Spirit? Because when we walk in the Spirit, then the Spirit of God produces these things in us. That we become people who are more gentle, more patient, more kind when we walk in the Spirit because the Spirit produces that in us. Or to use some of that language we saw in the verses before, these are inward attitudes that lead to outward actions. That when we embrace walking with the Spirit, that the Spirit produces these things in us and they lead to actions. They bear fruit in the lives that we live. And we are free to do this. We saw last week when we introduced this idea of freedom, we saw that freedom is a virtue that I explained in the message last week from the first half of this chapter. We're going to build a little bit more on that today. What else can we say about freedom besides freedom being a virtue? What more is there to that? We do talk about freedom quite a bit as, as Americans in this country because freedom is one of those things that we cherish and we have different ways of thinking about freedom. Often it seems like our discussion of freedom heads down a discussion about rights. Well, freedom means I have rights. There are rights that we all have because of freedom. And if you take away my rights, then you take away my freedom. And I think somewhere along the line we fall into this place of making those two things one and the same. That perhaps we think of freedom as being nothing more than a collection of rights to which we're entitled, to which we are guaranteed. I don't see that that's where Paul's after in this passage. He's not talking about rights. In fact, rights don't come up at all. Freedom is not a right. Freedom is a responsibility. That's what Paul is after here. It's not a right, it's a responsibility. In fact, maybe it's, it's good that we remember that on this day, coming out of a week when we commemorated Veterans Day. You remember our, our veterans, those who have served our country, those who have put themselves in harm's way to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. Veterans would say, 
that freedom is a responsibility. God, we defend that because we are responsible for that. Not about rights. Why? Because rights are about myself, aren't they? Whenever we talk about freedom in the context of being rights, my rights and what I have, that's a discussion of freedom that is just about me, me, me. Or, to use some of the language we've already looked at in this passage, an inward focus that leads to, and I'll just leave fill in the blank there, acts of the flesh. Because those are all acts that are about me, me, me. It's still freedom, right? Because we see that in this passage. Paul says, you have the choice. You can choose, but if you choose that, you're not choosing the best. It's not about rights. But rather, I think what we see here is that freedom is, is about my responsibilities. Or rather, instead of being an inward focus, freedom becomes something of an outward focus. And an outward focus that leads to, again, fill in the blank, fruits of the Spirit. When we embrace it that way. In the Ron Howard movie, Far and Away, the character Joseph Donnelly goes from being a tenant sharecrop farmer on land that he doesn't own in Ireland, and he's told what to do and how to do it, to owning his own farm in Oklahoma, in America. And the woman he meets and falls in love with along the way asks him at some point, so Joseph, when you've got your farm, when you've got your land, what are you going to grow? What will you do? And Joseph is stumped by this question. I don't know. I've never thought about that before. I've never been able to choose before what it is I get to grow. I've never had the freedom to make that choice. So because he's never thought about that, he's stumped by the question. Freedom, when it comes with a choice that way, means that we look at those options and we think about it and we, ask to ask the question. we have to ask the question, so what is the best way to use the freedom that we have? What should we do with the freedom we've been given in Christ? Sometimes we never even think about that question. It's never been brought to us before. But what we see in this passage today that Paul's bringing to us is to say, you know what? The freedom that you've been given with Christ comes with that choice and there is a good choice to make there. There is the best possible way to live as people who are free. People who don't focus on inward, what's in it for me? What do I get? What's my right? But people who focus on outward. How can I walk in the Spirit so that God's Spirit will produce this fruit in me that others may come to know him as well? May we be people then who walk in the Spirit. May we be people who live in freedom to follow the Spirit that God may produce good fruit in us so that others may come to know God as well. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we confess that sometimes we uh, get a little confused about what freedom is and what it means, and we may be quick to turn to selfish ambition. But Lord, we pray today that you would remind us that there is a better way, 
to use the freedom you've given to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would lead us to walk in the Spirit so that we may produce that fruit. Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us, the people of your church, that we may clearly see your Spirit and know how to walk within the ways that you have set